0: We're going to have a great battle oh. here as Jeremy McGrath almost took off himself. And like uh, Larocco picking up on McGrath.
1: It's the most mistakes I've ever seen McGrath make, but you know what? If he wins the race, who cares?
2: Let's listen to the final lap of the 1996 St. Louis Supercross together. This is Art Ekman and David Bailey on the call on ESPN2.
1: One lap to go. Can Emmick do it? He's got a good, comfortable lead right now, unless Jeremy can stay closer than this, emig has got the composure to hold
0: on to it. Emig is one win in Supercross history was Las Vegas. McGrath was not in the field. Jeremy just had lost a little bit of time, but he
1: jumped that section that LaRocco was doing, made it back up. Watch him through the whoops, up the inside. Amick doing a good job. Through the whoops. I think the key might be that final corner where Jeremy got around Lawrence for the
0: heat race. I'll tell you, the fans are all out of their seats with good reason. Emig leading Jeremy McGrath in the final lap. Here's the second to the last turn. Emig, flawless. McGrath is not close enough to make a move on the final turn. It is Jeff Emig.
2: I was 17 years old in 1996, when Jeremy McGrath's run of 13 consecutive AMA Supercross wins came to an end. By that point in the season, it was easy to think of McGrath as godlike, not human, incapable of making mistakes. We all wanted to be just like him, and we picked up on his style, staying low over the jumps, looking smooth and flawless. The brave among us even tried knack-knacks. Rewatching today, that main event from St. Louis, McGrath clearly was a human being, capable of making mistakes and an off night. But when you're chasing perfection, the expectations placed upon you are heavy. McGrath handled it well, but on one night in the Midwest, things simply didn't go his way. This story dives deep into attempting to find the reason or reasons why mcgrath didn't win that night when it seemed like he'd won the previous 13 races so easily but it all seems easy when you're watching from the stadium seats or a couch right we went fast celebrates our emotional connection to motorcycles if you want to celebrate with us go to wewentfast.com/shop and buy something i'm completely biased but my shirts are really really nice Tell a friend about We Went Fast, and keep me in mind if you're looking for a gift for someone. I can ship anywhere on your behalf. For products that tell a story, go to wewentfast.com slash shop. Here's Jeremy McGrath and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad night in St. Louis. On April 27th, 1996, Jeremy McGrath fell short of perfection, and the rest of the world won't let him forget it skip norfolk blew it decades later he repeats himself ad nauseam in recounting one of the more sour memories in his career as jeremy mcgrath's race mechanic i didn't do my job i let the guy down i wasn't able to i failed him mcgrath only recently learned of this burden norfolk carried all these years He had no idea Skip blamed himself for the 1996 St. Louis Supercross loss—the only blemish in a season where McGrath won 14 out of the 15 races, including a fourth consecutive championship. McGrath bristles at the first mention of being asked to discuss this race. Although he's most famous for his record seven championships and 72 main event wins, When the 1996 season comes up in conversation, nobody asks him about how he dominated, or how he won Daytona for the first time, or led every lap in the wind and rain at Charlotte Motor Speedway, or how he won the championship a full three races early, clinching at the Pontiac Silverdome, the 12th of 15 rounds. It's always about the night that he took second place. The philosophical argument about 1996 is, what was more unusual, the fact that Jeremy McGrath had won the first 13 races, or that there could be a night where he simply wasn't the best rider? I made a career doing the things that people thought I couldn't, McGrath said. I was fortunate to be good enough to wear that type of race, where I got second, was a miserable race. That's a weird thing to say. McGrath dominated the 96 season, but like any sports streak, he caught some breaks. In Seattle, he rebounded from a poor start and was passed by Damon Huffman three times for the lead. Attempting a fourth pass, Huffman stalled his bike and couldn't catch McGrath again. In Indianapolis, Jeff Emig led comfortably at the halfway point and, in an unforced error, washed out in a corner. What if talk won't change history, but can be fun for discussion? What's certain is McGrath was not the best supercross racer on one night in St. Louis. So many things lined up wrong to go racing that day, Norfolk says. None of the parties involved can offer a single detail that specifically caused the outcome of this race. But in a season where nothing could go wrong for McGrath's team, Suddenly, there was a series of minute circumstances that, in hindsight, collectively didn't seem right. The first clue arose long before they arrived on site. The 1996 race was held at a new stadium, what was then called the Transworld Dome. It had only been open for five months, and parts of it were still under construction. Two weeks prior to the race, AMA referee Duke Finch warned all teams that parking would be limited due to ongoing construction. The promoter, Pace Motorsports, rented 14 loading dock slots where the teams with 18 wheelers could park and work. Everyone else was advised to pack light because they would be pitted together inside an open area and had to carry in all their supplies. Team Honda still operated out of box vans in 1996. In St. Louis, Norfolk and McGrath looked like a couple of local weekend warriors. They had a bike, toolbox, lawn chair, and gear bag sitting in the dark, concrete underbelly of the stadium. McGrath was used to this type of setting from all the European races he'd attended. But in the United States, with so much pressure building to earn a perfect season... Norfolk felt uneasy, because he didn't feel like he was in control of his surroundings. We were standing there naked in a sense, Norfolk says. In addition to maintaining McGrath's bike every week, he typically ran interference and tried to make sure his rider had the space and time to mentally prepare each night. As the wind streak lengthened, the interview and appearance requests ballooned as did the number of fans and friends stopping by for FaceTime with Jeremy. Coming into 1996, McGrath was already, by far, the most popular rider in the sport. By the end of the season, his dominance had earned him, and the sport, coverage in USA Today, appearances on ESPN's SportsCenter and RPM Tonight, outreach from local news stations and dailies along each stop, even hard copy did a hit. The promoters were also reaching out to The Tonight Show. Showtime was in high demand, and Norfolk worked overtime to make sure his rider had space throughout race day. It wasn't up to McGrath to say no, Norfolk says. He was Superman. Saying no was my job. I just tied Superman's shoes. That's all I did. Jeremy had an unbelievable ability to focus and turn things off and on. He could mentally talk himself out of arm pump. That's how strong he was. Norfolk believes two types of spectators showed up that cool late April night. Those who wanted to see Superman triumph once more, and those who wanted proof that Superman really was Clark Kent. St. Louis was the closest event Emmig had to a hometown race in his professional career. Raised 250 miles away in Kansas City, Emmig bought a dozen tickets for family and friends, and the 36,717 spectators in attendance were clearly split in allegiance between the champ and the challenger. The crowd was impressive considering that two other major sporting events were scheduled on the same day. Six-tenths of a mile to the south, an early afternoon baseball game at Bush Memorial Stadium was played between the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals. At the same time as the gate drop for Supercross Heat No. 1, the NHL's St. Louis Blues and the Toronto Maple Leafs squared off one mile to the west in conference quarterfinal game six. With 20,770 fans, the Kiel Center was at 108% capacity. Back in the Transworld Dome, as the first heat race of the night was lining up, 1983 AMA Supercross champion David Bailey was banging on the walls of the press box elevator while Art Ekman sat waiting for him in the television booth overlooking the stadium floor. Bailey, ESPN's Supercross analyst at the time, was stuck and alone, and the emergency phone was either out of order or had yet to be installed. Bailey can't recall. What he does remember is that he was involuntarily quarantined for
1: 71
2: minutes and may have missed the start of the race had it not been for Ekman who figured it out. Ekman and field reporter Marty Reed razzed Bailey all night on air. Even Emmett got in on the joke in his podium interview. After being lifted from the broken elevator by the fire department, Bailey was brought into the TV booth where Ekman sat with a friend, a gentleman in his mid-fifties, wearing a blue button-down and gray slacks, and who also happened to be wearing a studio headset. David, this is Bobby Cox, Ekman said. Cool. Bailey said as he tried to calm himself down, get into place, straighten his tie, and put on his headset. Then he thought to himself, who in the hell is Bobby Cox? After the ESPN Speed World opening sequence, the Supercross telecast opened with Ekman introducing Bailey and special guest Bobby Cox, a casual Supercross fan and the general manager of the 1995 World Series winning Atlanta Braves. On air, Cox talked about how the 1982 Braves also started their season with 13 consecutive victories, a record that was matched by the Milwaukee Brewers in 1987. As of this recording, those win streaks are still alive in Major League Baseball. This streak here, Cox said of McGrath's own run of a Baker's Dozen, it seems almost impossible to me. Cox, now a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, had accurate analysis because three hours later, his foreshadowing proved to be correct. Gary Emmig was excited. He thought his son's bike looked faster coming out of the turns. Jeremy Albrecht didn't understand how the elder Emmig could eyeball something like that, but he didn't question it because the mood at the Kawasaki truck was spirited. Despite losing to McGrath for 13 consecutive weekends, Jeff Emmick still believed he could win. Albrecht liked that about Jeff, and being only 24 years old and in his first year as a factory mechanic, Albrecht did everything he could to please his rider and team. This particular week, he installed a power jet on Emmick's KX250, an electronic piece that shot fuel into the carburetor exactly when the engine needed it, typically when its fuel mixture got too rich. Albrecht said electronics were still very new in motocross at the time, and they had only tested the part for two weeks. In practice, Emig had a minor get-off, but he was still upbeat. The track was rutted, the whoops, admittedly a huge weakness for him, were smaller and wouldn't be much of a factor, and the support of family gave him good vibes. Emig remembers lining up in St. Louis with a tremendous amount of confidence. I was always emotionally motivated, he says, Having family there inspired me to feel like I was on a date with destiny. I'm funny that way. In Heat 1, Emig took a tight line around the left-hand first turn and led all eight laps, but had constant pressure from Yamaha's Doug Henry. It was Emig's fifth Heat Race win of 1996. McGrath was the obvious focus in Heat 2. ESPN hooked up a microphone to Norfolk's team headset so the TV audience could listen in to anything he said to McGrath. When the camera hung out in front of McGrath's gate for an almost uncomfortable length of time, Skip finally leaned in to tell McGrath that the first turn was soft, and then he relayed a couple of scenarios. McGrath responded with ennui, boredom, even fought through a fit of yawning, and simply told Skip what he wasn't going to do. McGrath won Heat too, but spent the entire race chasing privateer Phil Lawrence, while both Mike Craig and Larry Ward took turns poking at the champ all the way to the last lap. With 150 feet to go, McGrath shot by Lawrence for the win. His total running time for the Heat, however, was just under 7 minutes and 40 seconds, 1.6 seconds shy of Emig's victory time. McGrath had second gate pick in the main event. Emig set the fastest heat of the night only one other time that season. McGrath's bike ran flawlessly in St. Louis, but Norfolk's biggest regret from that night was not being able to create an environment where Jeremy could mentally prepare. After the heat races, Emig sat in the private and warm lounge at the front of the Kawasaki trailer and studied film. McGrath, on the other hand, was a sitting duck in the open-air paddock, and he was asked by Pace officials to meet with executives from Anheuser-Busch, based in St. Louis. They were trying to close the beverage giant as a series sponsor, and McGrath obliged. He left the paddock to walk, in full gear, to a room that he thought was nearby. That never happened, McGrath says of the mid-program request. It was a rare situation, but I'm a pleaser. I want to help everyone and then some. The meeting was in a suite on the other side of the stadium. It felt like two miles, McGrath recalls. Moving around the most popular person at a gathering of nearly 40,000 is a painfully slow process. And by the time he came back to the bike, he had just enough time to change his gear before walking to the staging area for the main event. Norfolk didn't get time to talk to McGrath about the bike or go over the heat race film, and he was irked at himself for not trying harder to keep Jeremy nearby. The promoters ultimately did not close the sponsorship deal, but six years later, Bud Light, an Anheuser-Busch brand, became the title sponsor of McGrath's race team. Want to support We Went Fast? These stories are primarily funded by you, the listener. Join the Fast family by checking out wewentfast.com shop, where you'll find quality shirts, hats, and art. WeWentFast.com slash shop. In the main event, Emig had first gate pick, and McGrath, in a move that still baffles him today, lined up to the inside of his rival. I must have felt like I needed to be on the inside of Emig, he says. That wasn't normal for me. Since McGrath typically had the faster heat race, he was accustomed to seeing Emig line up to his left. He couldn't control that. But when the roles were reversed... McGrath said he usually avoided being anywhere near Emig, who started well and had a tendency to drift out of the gate. Jeremy Albrecht says that was often part of Emig's strategy, and he was also puzzled when McGrath pulled into the inside. I remember races where Jeff would cut a guy off on the start on purpose because that was the only way he was going to beat him, Albrecht says. Because of moves like this, McGrath strongly disliked Emig. Although their relationship is cordial today, McGrath doesn't edit himself when discussing his feelings toward the mid-90s version of Fro. His track etiquette was terrible, McGrath says. None of the riders liked racing against him. He chopped everyone off. Norfolk believed that McGrath usually had 17 of the other 19 riders beaten before the gate fell. Mike Larocco and Emig were the exceptions and Emig remained hopeful even though he still hadn't won a race over McGrath in his five years in the premier class. I had it in my mind that he was beatable, he says. It was not easy to be rivals. I appreciate now the struggles in having an adversary and challenger that was such a great champion. As painful as it was sometimes, without that intense rivalry with McGrath, I might not ever have reached the success that I did have. Before the 30 second card went up, Emig sat stone still on his bike while McGrath clapped his hands, rolled his head in circles and rubbed his forearms. After the bikes had fired up, Norfolk reminded his rider that he only needed a hole shot and four hard laps and he could coast.
0: Hey! You got Honda Troy beside you, you got Team Yamaha down from them, and you know who's sitting on your right. Okay, you know where you gotta be when the gate drops. Forget about the heat race. You need a whole shot, four laps of your race, and then you'll be out front. You can do whatever you want then, all right? Hammer on these guys, 20 laps this time.
2: When the gate fell, Emig jumped out well and immediately shot to his left. Exactly as he did in the heat race, he hugged the inside of turn one and rounded the bend in the lead. McGrath was about 10th around the first corner, but was 5th coming into turn 3. He spent nearly the entire first lap trying to pass Ezra Lusk for 4th, and that was the last outright pass he made for the rest of the race. McGrath sat in 4th place until lap 9, when Phil Lawrence, who nipped at Emming for the lead, cross-rutted on a roller, and bounced awkwardly into a hay bale. On lap 10, McGrath was third and trailing behind two of the most difficult riders to pass, Emig and Suzuki's Mike Larocco, a rider who rarely started near the front. By the halfway point, Norfolk was in the mechanics area with a knot in his stomach. The fact that McGrath had sat in the same position for almost half the race, a position that wasn't the lead, was foreign to him. He could see that his rider wasn't on the balls of his feet, was making double foot dabs in the corner, casing small double jumps, losing traction coming out of the turns, and not riding like a four-time champion. That was not Jeremy out there, he says. You could see it in how he rode. That's what hurt the most. On lap 12, the lead trio tightened up, and McGrath blasted by Larocco on the start straight when he picked up momentum in the corner after the finish line. Larocco stayed close, pulled even over the triples, and McGrath glanced over from the inside. In the next corner, McGrath went for the middle of the 180 degree turn, while LaRocco darted toward his front wheel. McGrath was slammed so hard by LaRocco that both feet flailed off the pegs and he weaved to the other side of the track.
1: Look at LaRocco, he's got an excellent line coming off of that section.
0: He gets Jeremy back briefly. Bar to bar, McGrath takes the advantage of the triple LaRocco, he gets the black pass. Oh, what great infighting. That's what it's going
1: to take. The guy that wants it the most right now is the guy that's going to win this race.
2: LaRocco doesn't remember the specific pass, but says, Sounds like something I would have done. How McGrath's night didn't end right there is impressive. LaRocco then passed Emig in the same corner with a similar block, but led for only 150 feet. Two laps later, LaRocco hit Emig from the inside again, this time in a 90-degree corner, but came in at such a severe angle that his left leg popped off the right side of the bike. He remounted without falling, but McGrath swept by. McGrath had about six laps to pass Emig for the lead, but every time he came close enough to make a move, he'd case a jump or cross-rut and lose momentum. The track deteriorated and became heavily rutted and choppy. McGrath's analysis is that Emig won a fair fight, but he feels that nobody rode very well that night. It was a survival deal, he says. While being interviewed, Emig pulls up the race on YouTube and offers a different take. I didn't make any mistakes from what I can see, he says. I didn't let the emotions of the race affect me in a negative way. Today, Emig feels loss aversion. The economic theory that people prefer avoiding loss rather than acquiring gain can sum up his entire Supercross career. I was riding good but conservative out front because I had something to lose again. I had been in that spot so many times, Emig says. For the final six laps, while McGrath yo-yoed in second place, Emig appeared to not notice what was going on behind him. But he says he'd be lying if he didn't admit to keeping an eye on McGrath. Why would you not? The guy had just won every race. Of course you're looking out for him, Emig says. After losing his first AMA race since July 30th, 1995, McGrath remembers feeling relief, but he was pissed that it was Emig who beat him. He wanted it to be anyone but Emig. Even though he tried to downplay the pressure of the perfect season, in his 2004 book, Wide Open, McGrath admitted, it was starting to get to me. One of McGrath's greatest qualities as an athlete was that he was confident enough to expect to win every single race, But when he didn't, he wasn't upset. Expectations, he says, can sour a career, and he made sure that winning didn't become a burden. At a certain point, you get so tired of the expectations that you wish they would just go away, he says, of his observations of great champions in motorcycling and other sports. You like winning, but you get tired of the expectations and retire. That's about the only way you can
0: push the reset button. Jeff Emig, number two in front of Jeremy McGrath. The streak is broken. Thirteen consecutive Supercross victories for Jeremy McGrath. A record that should stand for some time, David Bailey, as Jeff Emig across the finish line. So the perfect season was over.
2: Cycle News was finally off the hook from conjuring clever headlines, and Fox Racing didn't have the pressure to keep designing creative butt patches about the streak. Straight nine lives, hang ten. But for Norfolk and team manager Dave Arnold, being employees of Honda, the pressure to win was always prevalent. If we didn't win everything, every day, even if it was a good excuse, I remember hearing about it, Arnold says. I'm not exaggerating. Honda was tough. They wanted to bitch slap the other manufacturers back in time. McGrath doesn't remember feeling that pressure to be perfect but the team personnel were careful to shield him. He also won more races than he didn't. Norfolk, however, was devastated after St. Louis, and he remembers nothing in the seven days between the checkered flag and the morning of the Hangtown Motocross National outside of Sacramento, California, eight days later. The week was a complete fog, and at Hangtown, he was directed to park on a camber that required him to do some digging for his truck to be level. It was Sunday morning, race day, and he completely lost it. Standing in the sun with a shovel in his hand, he fumed at the fact that he was being asked to park on a hill in the first place. Why wasn't there more level ground? I felt like I needed to be perfect, and if I have to be perfect, everyone needs to be perfect. I remember losing it on a guy that was just trying to help me level my box van, Norfolk says. Emick didn't win another AMA race until May 26th, the High Point National. In 1996, the Supercross and Motocross seasons still overlapped, and rounds 2 and 3 of the Motocross series fell between St. Louis and the final round of Supercross in Denver. McGrath won all three of those races, and Emick still remembers being on such a high in Denver that he didn't care where he finished. That one victory in St. Louis meant the world to me. It's just one race out of hundreds, but it's a race that I am very proud of. By examination of the record books, the residual effects of that win in St. Louis were huge for Emig. The day before the final Supercross race in Denver, he did a video shoot with MTV Sports, an irreverent sports program that was interested in featuring the guy that finally beat McGrath. Emig went on to win 16 major AMA races through the end of 1997. He also won all three eligible championships, the 96 and 97 250 Pro Motocross titles and the 1997 Supercross Championship. The next highest win total was McGrath, nine wins and zero titles in that span. McGrath chuckles about how the race Jeff Emig is most famous for winning is the same race he's most famous for losing. He doesn't blame anyone but himself for what happened in St. Louis, and he doesn't believe there's a hole in his resume. The man already called Showtime later became the King of Supercross, probably the most honorary title anyone, anywhere could have bestowed upon them. But kings are still human, and for one night, even this symbolic monarch of sport couldn't force perfection to his will. Thanks for listening. If you want to support an independent storyteller, Go to wewentfast.com/shop and buy a shirt, or stickers, or art, and tell a friend. slash shop